Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh skins. Years ago, I decided I was going to teach myself to play guitar. Um, it was back when we was looking at, I knew God was calling us into the ministry, and I didn't know where I was going to end up. I thought it would probably be out in the bush, and I knew often out in the bush we wouldn't have any musos. So I thought, well, I guess maybe I'd better try and learn how to play something so that we can take some music with us. So I bought a guitar. Uh, it wasn't an El Cheapo, but it was just a basic but okay guitar. And my thought process was, well, I'll give this thing a go, and if I keep it up, then I'll buy myself a, a, a much better one later. Anyway, it wasn't that long until I realised I needed the better one sooner because the one that I had didn't have a pickup and we needed to be able to plug it into sound systems at churches that we're going to. And, and so I upgraded sooner than what I thought. And that was okay because it wasn't long and Ben was old enough to start learning the guitar. And I thought, right, well, he can have my old one. Anyway, you've heard Ben and I both play in church. Uh, I'm still very basic and Ben's getting pretty jolly good. Uh, and the worst thing, and the thing is, Ben, um, he's now got himself, he's got a really, really good guitar now. He doesn't use my old basic one anymore. And probably the worst thing I ever did was have a go of his guitar and go, wow, this sounds really nice. And it's easier to play too. And so now I'm jealous and that's not a good thing. The pastor's not supposed to be somebody who gets jealous, is he? Uh, anyway, Ben's packing up his room uh, because he's about to get married, as you know. And he said to me the other night, Dad, what do you want me to do with this old guitar? Because he's still also got stuck away in his cupboard my old first guitar. And there lies a dilemma for us, doesn't it? The old guitar still works. There's nothing wrong with it. But Ben doesn't want it anymore. Why would he? Because he's got a really, really good guitar. And I don't want it anymore because... Well, I've got that other guitar, which is, well, it's a bit better. It's not a lot better, but it's a bit better. Um, so I don't really want it. What do we do with the old one? Do we keep it in case the grandkiddies want to learn to play guitar? Sammy, do you want my guitar? <laughs> hey, maybe. We'll wait and see. Today's message is all about discarding the old because the new is better. And sometimes the old and the new are just not compatible with each other. Like, I can't play two guitars at once. I can only play one guitar at a time. And, and I can't take parts from the old guitar and add it to the new guitar. It, it just doesn't work. Uh, probably a better example would be if I was to talk about computers. 
Sometimes you upgrade an operating system on a computer and all of a sudden you realise some of your old pieces of software don't work anymore. Or you buy a new computer and it doesn't have the plugs that the old one used to have and so you can't plug things in anymore. Um, and you sort of think, well, what do I do with this old stuff? It still works. That old software still works and it used to be really useful. Those old printers used to work and they used to be really useful. But the thing is you don't need them anymore because you've now got something which is so much better. So out with the old and in with the new. The trouble is, though, sometimes we find it a little bit hard to discard some of the old stuff. We know that the new stuff's better, but maybe, maybe we might use that old thing one day. And sometimes we just don't throw it out. We just keep it, just in case. I've still got some old hand pieces and combs and cutters from when I used to do a bit of shearing. I don't know how many years it is since I shore a sheep. And the last few times I did, I just borrowed somebody else's because they were shearing. I just turned up and, oh, can I shear a sheep? Yes, righto. But not only that, I've still got some narrow gear. I've got, amongst all my stuff, I've got an old narrow hand piece and a bunch of narrow combs and cutters as well. Why? Why would I have that? Whoa, somebody might want it one day. I don't think anybody uses narrow gear anymore. Why would they when the wide is so much better and so much faster? Now, am I striking any chords with anyone here? Do we have any hoarders here? Does anybody... Yeah, we've got a few hands that are sort of reluctantly getting shown. Um, some, of, <laughs> some of us, we just don't want to throw away stuff. Um, we've gotten the new stuff, but we just haven't discarded the old. Today's message is about discarding the old because the new is so much better. And I'm not going to be talking about things and stuff. I'm not going to be giving you space-saving advice or methods to reduce clutter around the house. Today we're going to be talking about discarding our old ways. We're going to be talking about discarding our old sinful ways and we're even going to be talking about discarding our old religious ways. We're going to be talking about discarding our old ways and embracing the ways of Jesus. Discarding the old because the new is so much better. Right Now, in today's reading, the presenting issue was the issue of fasting. John the Baptist's disciples had a practice of regularly fasting, and so too did the Pharisees' disciples. But evidently, Jesus' disciples did not. And so Jesus was asked the question, how come? How come those other religious people fast, but you lot don't? And Jesus answered that question on two different levels. Firstly, he asked them a question. Have you ever noticed that with Jesus? Often people would ask Jesus a question, and he'd answer them with another question and make them think about it. And the question he asked them was this, can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. All right, there is a time for fasting and there's a time for not fasting. There's actually a time for feasting 
and a time for celebrating. We don't have to be fasting all the time. Now, now Robin and I, um, getting a bit personal here, but we're actually in the middle of our wedding diets. Okay, so Ben and Francis's wedding is coming up. And I've got a sports coat that I've got to, got to be able to fit into by then. And I've decided it's, it's probably much better for me to um, just stop eating for a little while than what it is for me to go and buy another sports coat. Um, so we're in the midst of the wedding diet phase. And it's, let me tell you, it's not easy. It's not easy. Um, but when it actually gets to the day of the wedding... It would be wrong for us to be dieting on that day, right? It's not a day for fasting. It'll be a day for feasting and a day for celebration. There is a time to fast and there is a time to feast and to celebrate. But let's take a step back. What is the religious practice of fasting all about? Um, some of us will be familiar with fasting some of us will have heard about it, but not really know what it's about. And some of us might not have even heard of this. What is the practice of fasting all about? Well, as we read in our Bibles, we can see a number of circumstances and there's a number of reasons that people stop eating meals for a period while they pray. Uh, some people abstain from eating certain foods for a certain time. Uh, you may have heard somebody talk of a Daniel fast, uh, because that's we read in, the, in Daniel, where Daniel actually was, had a practice of fasting where he would refrain from eating certain foods. And he, I think he just ate nuts and vegetables and, and things like that for a period. Uh, but some people will then stop eating food, stop eating all food. For a certain period and then there's different lengths of time that people would fast some might fast for just one meal or two meals in a day sometimes people would fast during the daytime some people would fast for many days in a row for up to 40 days eating nothing at all for 40 days now at various times in my life um, there's been times where I've fasted regularly one day a week and sometimes it's been a thing of, of not eating anything for that one day a week and setting that, side a day, that day aside for prayer. Uh, sometimes I've had the practice of not eating at all during the day, but then having an evening meal at night for one day a week. But then there's been times when there's been really big issues and big decision times to make, and I've had a whole week of prayer and fasting where I don't eat anything for a whole week. The point is, there is no fixed rule for what a fast is. But essentially, it is giving up something, usually food, for the purpose of prayer. So, in what sorts of circumstances would a ch person choose to fast? Well, in, in the scriptures, we see a number of examples. And, and I want you to remember these are just examples. One of the most common reasons to fast is at a time of repentance. So in 1 Samuel ch chapter 7, Samuel called the house of Israel to turn away from their foreign gods and to turn back to Yahweh. And they did. They repented of their sins. And I can't see that they were ordered anywhere to do this, 
but it was their natural response that in their sorrow for their sins, they fasted for a day. And so fasting is a way of us humbling ourselves and showing sorrow and contrition for our actions as we repent of our sins and ask for forgiveness. Another example of this would be when David committed adultery and murder. And Nathan the prophet came to David and told him that, that it's not a secret. God knows about this. And he also told David that his son was going to die. And David's son got sick and for seven days David fasted as he lay on the ground. And he prayed to God on behalf of the child. Right, so that, that example wasn't just an example of, of contrition. It wasn't just an example of repentance. He was also at that time praying for the recovery of his son from sickness. And so sometimes we fast as we pray for healing. Sometimes in times of sorrow, people's fast. And if you've ever known true sorrow, you probably know very well what this is like when you are so sad that you just don't feel like eating. Uh, when King Saul died, the mighty men, that's like the SAS of Israel, took his body and buried him and they fasted for seven days as they mourned. And it wasn't only Saul who died that day, it was also Jonathan, his son, who was one of David's best mates. And the people of God also died. There was many people in the house of Israel who died that day in that same battle. And David and those who were with them mourned and wept and fasted until evening. And so in times of deep sorrow and grief, people fast. Following a disaster. People spontaneously come before God and fast and pray for help. Uh, in the book of Esther, the evil Haman tricks the king into making a law which is going to bring about the genocide of all of the Jewish people in the land. And when the Jews heard about it, there was great mourning among them with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. But that story doesn't end there. It wasn't only fasting because of sorrow. Esther then called the people to a fast to pray for her as she goes to plead to the king on their behalf. Now, it was a very dangerous thing for Esther to go before the king because this king was so high that um, nobody was allowed to just turn up without being invited. Because if the king was displeased to see them, they would be killed. And so Esther wanted the people to pray and humble themselves before God in a fast that she would be received well by the king. In Psalm 69, David tells us what fasting meant to him. He said that he humbled his soul with a fast. Jesus fasted. Do you remember Jesus fasting? Forty days he fasted out in the wilderness. And although his body was weakened from that very long fast, the spirit was strong and he resisted the temptations of the devil. 
In Luke chapter 2, we hear about an 84-year-old prophetess, Anna. And it tells us that she did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. All right? Fasting and prayer. We, we t often think of just prayer and fasting as thinking of times for us when we're asking God for stuff. But here we're learning that fasting and prayer is a means of worshipping God. In the New Testament, in the early church, when they were seeking guidance from God, they prayed and they fasted. And that's, I guess, been a key thing in my life. In times when we've really been seeking guidance from God, we've prayed and fasted. And fasting is also an important tool to be used in spiritual warfare. When Jesus' disciples couldn't drive a demon out of somebody, Jesus said, well, you can only get this kind of demon out with prayer and fasting. All right? So, so as far as I can see, the main purposes of fasting is to humble ourselves before God. Uh, sometimes it's a natural reaction to grief. Sometimes it's a natural expression of our remorse as we confess our sins. But it is to deny what our body craves in order that we can give ourselves more fully over to God. And so when we pray and worship and seek God, fasting can and should be at times part of our life of prayer. When fasting comes from the heart, um, some people think that, oh, fasting makes my prayer stronger, and maybe that might be so. But this I do know. When fasting comes from the heart, it certainly helps us to focus on God and for him to help us to know what the right thing is that we should be praying for. And this bit is important. Most of the examples of fasting that I can find in the Bible are a personal response to God. And yet some people see fasting as a rule that we have to live by. Um, so I've seen, said that most examples of fasting that I can find in the Bible are a personal response to God. But having said that, for the nation of Israel, there were a few fasts that they were commanded to keep. Uh, so, for example, on the Day of Atonement. Uh, that, the Day of Atonement was the big um, ceremony that they had um, in Israel uh, where the people's sins were atoned for. Um, their sins were paid for on that day and they were given forgiveness. And on the Day of Atonement they were commanded that they should fast on that day. And then in Zechariah chapter 8, we find another four additional fasts that are mentioned. All right, so it seems like fasting is a good thing. There is a time for fasting, there is a time not to fast. So there is a time for fasting, but there is also a time for feasting and for celebrating. Uh, an example of this is, once again, if we see the story of Esther. Uh, and God, in the story of Esther, um, God, in his mercy, answered their prayers. 
And the king didn't have Esther killed. He listened to Esther and he responded to her request. And those who were trying to kill the Jews were themselves destroyed and the Jews were honoured. And in chapter 8, verse 16, we read, And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honour. And in every province and in every city, city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and a feast and a holiday. Wow, what a tr transition that happened. There was this time of, um, of this great challenge that was before them. And so they prayed and they fasted and they humbled themselves before God. But then when God intervened, that was no longer a time for fasting. It was a time for feasting and for celebrating what God had done. And so fasting is a good thing. But why didn't Jesus' disciples fast? Well, it was all about timing. It wasn't the right time. People had been praying and fasting for millennia, asking for God to bring salvation. And guess what? Jesus is the answer to those prayers and fastings of millennia. And so while Jesus was with his disciples, it wasn't a time for fasting. It was a time for feasting and celebrating because God had answered the prayer and God had sent the Messiah to save the world. But remember, I said Jesus' answer came on two different levels. So we've heard about timing. The second level was out with the old and in with the new because the new is better. And not only is the new better, the new and the old are very often incompatible with each other. And he gives us two analogies to explain. Um, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. Now, for us to actually get these examples he's given, we, we have to think outside of our modern context and think of the way things were in the first century, right? Fabric and clothes have obviously come a long way since the first century. Fabric does not shrink near as much as what it used to. Now, it does still shrink. I know this from experience. Um, when Robin and I were newly married, uh, I thought that I was going to be a really good husband and, and do a really good deed, and um, I did the washing. And I thought, well, my, my clothes are pretty greasy and grubby. They really need a good wash. And we had a solar hot water system, and it was the middle of summer, so we had oodles and oodles of scalding hot water. And so I put my work clothes on to wash in a hot wash, and... And yep, they come out, got all the grease out, and yeah, that's pretty good. So then I put Robin's clothes in and, and turned the knob and pressed the button and um, thought that I was doing the right thing. Same setting as what I had my work clothes on. And he, next time Robin went to put on a long pants, they'd turned into knickerbockers. So something that was supposed to go down to the ankle stopped just below the knee. And I thought that I was doing a good thing, but I got into trouble. But it worked out all right for me in the end because she forbid me from ever doing the washing ever again of her clothes. 
And so, um, yes, I'm very sad that I can't do the washing. But so, so I learned the hard way that fabric does still shrink. Uh, but these days, fabric mostly is pre-shrunk. And a fair bit of technology goes into preventing fabric from shrinking. But back in the first century, it was not so. If you tried to patch an old set of clothes with some new fabric, well, the, new, the old clothes had had years of shrinking. But the new fabric hadn't had any shrinking. And you sew it on, and it over time would just shrink and just tear away from the old clothes, and the clothes would be ruined. And his second analogy was no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Are there any wine connoisseurs here? No, no, wrong clientele. Uh, I'm not a connoisseur either, but I, some people I know would never drink wine that they that you would buy in a cardboard box. Oh no, it should be in a bottle. But I sort of, as I was thinking, doing this message, I was sort of thinking, I wonder how how those people would feel drinking wine out of a goat skin. I mean, that that'd add a whole new set of flavours to it, wouldn't it? Now, apparently, the process was they would crush the grapes and they'd let it ferment for a while in a vat. But then the final part of the fermentation process was in the wineskin. Uh, by the way, some people will try and tell you that the wine in those days wasn't alcoholic. Don't you believe that for a minute? It was. That's, that's what happens when you make wine. It turns alcoholic. And it's the alcohol that preserves it. Um, the sugar in the grapes would ferment until the sugar content was lowered and the alcohol became the preservative. Anyway, apparently the process was they'd crush the grapes, let it ferment for a while, put it into the wine skin for the final bit of fermentation, and it would be sealed up in that skin from the time they put it in until it's ready to be consumed. And because there was still a bit of fermentation to take place, it was important that it went into a new pliable skin. A new skin had the ability to be able to stretch a bit. Because when grapes ferment, is anyone familiar with chemistry? What happens when something ferments? It consumes the sugar and it converts it to alcohol and a gas. Anyone know the gas? Carbon dioxide, okay. Um, and so it is the carbon dioxide gas which is getting produced in there which stretches the skin. But of course, if they tried to put it in an old skin that had already had its time of stretching and then been allowed to dry out and then fill it up and expect it to stretch again, it's not going to stretch the second time. It's just going to burst and lose the wine and the skin will be ruined as well. So what's Jesus saying about fasting? Is he saying that now that Jesus has come, now that we're under the new covenant, Disciples of Jesus shouldn't fast. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. Because in fact, he says there will come a time when the disciples of Jesus will fast. And we see examples of Jesus' disciples and the early church fasting. So what is Jesus saying? 
to humble ourselves and for a time to fast and pray is a good thing. But the sort of fasting that the Pharisees was doing was not that. The Pharisees had taken something which should be a personal response to God from the heart and they turned it into a religious act of self-righteousness. They turned it into a rule that people should live by. Instead of being moved by the Spirit of God to humble themselves and for a time to fast and pray, they had actually turned it into a status symbol of their religious elitism, right? So they had actually turned it into exactly the opposite of the purpose of fasting. The purpose of fasting is to humble ourselves before God. But they had turned it into a symbol of religious elitism. Many of them practiced the fasting two, sorry, many of them had a practice of fasting two days every week. And they let everybody know about it. Oh, I'm very hungry today. I'm fasting, you know. I do that twice a week, you know. Ooh, you must be very spiritual. Do you remember the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, skiding about himself? Tells us the Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers or even that tax collector over there I fast twice a week I give tithes of all I get now that's a pretty unflattering picture isn't it but that is a true picture of what fasting had become not at all what God had intended but a badge of perceived spiritual religious superiority it was seen that if you were someone who had fasted, you were spiritually superior. Jesus didn't come to end fasting. He came to do away with the old perverted religion of doing religious acts and presenting a religious image of spiritual superiority when these people were actually rotten to the core. Jesus came to save sinners. The new wine is being saved through grace and mercy of God found in Jesus Christ. Whenever any of us come to Jesus to give ourselves to Jesus as Lord, we have to realise that the old is incompatible with the new. There will be things in my old life that I need to get rid of so that I can be a true disciple of Jesus. Now, some of those things will be obvious. Theft, lust, immorality, greed, gossip, slander, hatred, bitterness. Our old way of life, we put it to death and we are born again to the new way of life in Jesus Christ. Some of those things are obvious. But here, Jesus is teaching us that even our old religion, where we once strived to be acceptable to God by fulfilling all, all religious righteousness, that itself is something that has to go. 
Why? Because it's an act of legality rather than a response of the heart. And God never intended it to be that way. When we give ourselves to Jesus Christ because he is Lord, there is no place for the legalities of ceremonial religion. When God fills us with his Holy Spirit, institutional legal religion cannot contain him. The prophet Isaiah compares an empty religious fast to what a true fast should be like. In Isaiah 58, he describes how outwardly it appears as if these certain people are seeking God. It appears that they're really wanting to be good with God. They're calling upon God every day. They're, they're fasting for God. They claim that they want to see God's righteousness and justice in their land as if they themselves were righteous and as if they themselves were just. But they, they, they're crying out because it seems that God doesn't hear them. And it seems that God isn't answering their prayers. And they cry out, why? Why aren't you hearing our prayers? Why have we fasted, God, and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed to, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break the yoke. I know when he's talking about the yoke, he's talking about the yoke of slavery. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own family. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go out before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he'll say, here I am. If. You take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. The old wineskin was religious fasting as a legal requirement, but done with a vile and filthy heart. It was all a show. The new wine and the new wineskin is a life transformed by the Spirit of God. 
So where does that leave us with fasting? Well, if you've never fasted for the purpose of prayer, now you know about it. I want to encourage you to be open to doing it sometimes. To humble yourself before God. To fast and pray. But never do it as a religious rule. Don't go, well, Michael told us that we have to fast. Michael hasn't told you you have to fast. Michael is telling you that the Lord will probably call you to fast sometime. And I'm encouraging you to hear that and to be obedient to that. So never do it as a religious rule because fasting isn't something that makes us more spiritual. But we also need to remember this. Some people who claim to be Christians become very somber and legalistic sorts of people and there's not a lot of joy about them. In Jesus Christ, we should be living a life of celebration because Jesus has, has saved us. Jesus has redeemed us from our sin. Jesus has given us eternal life. Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit to live inside of us and, and one of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Joy. Yes, there will be times for fasting. But we will not have an ongoing, sombre, legalistic requirement of fasting to somehow make ourselves more spiritual. Because we have the Spirit of God, there's much of the old that we have to put aside. And so when we fast, it is a heart response to God. And as we saw in Isaiah chapter 58, more important than fasting is to have a heart of righteousness and a just and righteous expression of our faith as we interact with others in the world. What do we discard because the new is better? And I want you to think about stuff. What Areas of your life do you need to discard because the way of Jesus is better? Our old self, which will be our old worldly self, but there will also be some of our old religious self that we have to discard too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to thank you that the new is so much better than the old. We want to thank you, Lord, that for our Lord Jesus Christ, who's come as the once and all sacrifice, so that simply by believing in him and, and submitting to him as Lord, we are saved, we are made righteous. Lord, I want to thank you that we're not made spiritual through our own striving, but through the gift of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I, I want to pray today. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, transform our lives. And my prayer, Lord, is that you would show us what what ways of our old life, what 
fleshly ways and even what religious ways you want us to discard because the new in Jesus Christ is so much better. Lord, we ask forgiveness for the times when we have um, tried to do the religious thing instead of just living by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would lead us to become a people who pray and fast, that we do this as an act of worship and that we do this as we draw closer and closer to you and as you reveal to us the things that you would have us pray for. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your joy, that there would be times of feasting and celebration. But Lord, I pray that you would give us experience of the times when we fast and pray, but then, Lord, help us to see the answers to those prayers and to celebrate those in the name of Jesus. Amen.